So if you want to start off with just a um, brief introduction about your background knowledge on the subject of Ethiopian communism, how you came to be familiar with it, and then we can go more into the details of some of the history. I for sure. Uh, you know, I'm an Ethiopian American, so I, you know, I was uh, kind of born with already like an innate knowledge or an innate interest on uh, on Ethiopia and the history. And uh, I originally, you know, getting to the topic of you know socialism in Ethiopia because a lot of uh, people don't know the status of, you know, of Ethiopians as it relates to Ethiopian Americans as it relates to communism is that of Cubans. Uh, Cuban Americans and socialism, right? A lot of them see like they uh, fled the pro the socialist project, and they, you know, kind of raised their children with an innate uh, anti-communism. So, you know, I I was kind of born uh, with that in mind, but you know, getting interested in the topic of you know Marxism uh, kind of changed that, you know. So, you know, in my teens, I guess. Well, I'm still in my teens, I'm going to turn 19 soon, but like, uh, you know, in my early teens and stuff like that, I started getting into Marxism, and then when I was near 15, 16, I started seriously reading about uh, Ngustu Haile Mariam and a lot of Ethiopian communists and their writings, right, like Haile Fida and stuff like that. So I've been getting, you know, I've been really interested in the topic of, you know, Ethiopian communism for years at this point and reading about it as well. Awesome. Um, so to go in, into the history, uh, I'm a little bit familiar with the history of, of communism in Ethiopia. I'm a little bit familiar with the revolution that overthrew uh, Haile Selassie. But if you don't mind going more into the history, the revolution itself, and then the Derg, kind of what it represented, what its ideology was, um, and then we can kind of discuss more of the, the structure of that period, uh, international involvement as well um, from, from Cuba and the USSR. So yeah, go for it. Just love to hear uh, your, your knowledge on it. Yeah, so the story of you know, this you know, quite unique uh, communism in Ethiopia starts in the 60s with uh, a lot of students uh, you know, the this Ethiopian student movement were the people who kind of diffused communism in Ethiopia, but it was, uh, so you know how Lenin said, uh, I believe the workers will use like the rope of capitalism to hang it. That's basically what happened. Uh, well, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's basically what happened. You know, a lot of students were sent abroad uh, in the West specifically, actually. And a lot of them went to America, you know, with the, uh, segregation still going on, you know, uh, Mengistu, you know, he was a soldier, but when he was sent to officer school, he was sent uh, to officer school in Maryland. And that was during, you know, the heyday of uh, the civil rights movement and lots of uh, segregation going on there. So that's what a lot of Ethiopian students, you know, had to deal with, you know, all abroad in the Western world. And, you know, coming back to Ethiopia, they kind of start building a sort of a class consciousness, at least within the, city, uh, at least within people in the city. So by the time the 70s came around with the you know, oil crisis and the, you know, the Great Famine uh, in Ethiopia, uh, everyone was basically ready to revolt. You know? This is a country where 
slavery is still being practiced. A lot of people say it ended, and I believe the 1920s when it was officially banned and then uh, Mussolini banned it after the invasion somehow in the, in the fascist times only controlled about one third of the country. Uh, when the liberation came around, the slavery persisted a lot of the, well, all of the feudalistic practices persisted and all of a specific ethno, uh, specific like ethno-feudalism uh, called the Gavar system, uh, specifically with the Oromo people uh, who were being oppressed, right? They were, you know, seen little more as just chattel animals, you know, chattel slaves. And that was like the, and the Oromo are like the biggest ethnic group in the country. And a lot of them are being subjected to this sort of oppression you know, it's only you can only do this for so long. And by the family, by the time the family came around, and the oil crisis, everyone in Ethiopia were saying, you know, now is enough. You know, and this was going on for a while with uh, this revolutionary fervor within Ethiopians, until uh, the military stepped in. And the thing about the derogates that it's a very very complex thing. A lot of people think that. Once the Derek came in, Ethiopia fully aligned to socialism. That's not really the case. Uh, there were three chairmen of the Derek. There was, I believe, Aman Andom, uh, Teferi Benti, and lastly, Lingus uh, Mahalimayan. Aman Andom actually wanted to continue the practices of the monarchy. He recognized the, the claim of uh, the crown prince of Ethiopia, I believe, Asfal Selassie. Uh, he continued uh, his claim on the country and simply wanted to modernize uh, the country in a more constitutional setting. Kind of like, oh, I forgot to mention, in 1960, there was an attempted coup d'etat uh, by the, I forgot their names, but it was, a, it was two brothers, one governor and the other leader of the Imperial Guard, Ethiopia. And they wanted to just basically turn Ethiopia into more progressive, uh, monarchy, but they want to basically they still wanted to continue the the base, you know, of the the country. So nothing really substantial would have changed with the superstructure. But and this was the same sentiment held by uh, Aman Andom, because like this sort of arrangement would simply not be possible at this point. Maybe in 1960, if the coup d'état succeeded, but by 1974, the monarchy was a dead idea within the hearts of millions and millions of Ethiopians. So he was, uh, I believe he was murdered soon enough. And Terry Benti was the one who came to power soon uh, after. He wanted to create a broad coalition uh, of socialists, conservatives and whatnot. And uh, preached, uh, he did not preach Marxism, Leninism. He preached something called Haber Salonet, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Basically he wanted to, like, uh, recreate the socialisms of Kwame Nkrumah and Julius Nyerere, these people who were not fully aligned with the ideals of Marxism and Leninism uh, while they were empowered, though they still, you know, believe in uh, socialism uh, in a more African setting. And this is what Tiferi Benti believed. Uh, but his, uh, his insistence on, uh, on issues such as Eritrea and the Ogaden in Somalia, I believe, the things that basically brought him disgrace within the council. And soon enough, the, I believe there was more of a secret coup uh, by Mengistu Halimaryam. With Mengistu, it's a lot more complicated because while it seems like the coup d'etat at this point is a, 
is a reactionary state trying to, you know, keep its hold on to power. But within uh, the military and within this clique of officers with Mengistu Alimaran, there's something called, I believe, the Abiyot Sedet, which means the revolutionary flame. And it was basically a faction of officers uh, in the derrick in the military who wanted to, you know, initiate a revolution on the ideals of Marxism and Leninism and institutes uh, Marxism and Leninism on the country. And soon enough, they succeeded uh, taking power from Benti and fully consolidating. Uh, and by 1978, uh, after the Ogaden War and whatnot, the, the, the control of Mangusu was basically solidified, especially after the, the Red Terror and whatnot. And can you go a little bit more into background on on these leading figures within the revolution? So you mentioned they came, for example, with Mengusu from a, a military background, but ideologically, how did they uh, get introduced and how did they interpret the ideas of Marxism-Leninism? How did they begin to apply them to the unique conditions in Ethiopia? And I guess that can take us into like the political program of of the Derg itself and then leading to the uh, the People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, what was the attempt to apply Marxism-Leninism as these leading figures were theorizing it to the conditions of Ethiopia, uh, the unique problems, as, as you mentioned, of um, continued feudalism, uh, continued slavery, as you talked about, and, and how was Marxism-Leninism uh, posited as a solution uh, to these problems? Yeah, uh, sure. So the thing about Mengistu's, I guess, cultivation ideologically, a lot of it came with his, uh, his education in America and officer school, right? So first off, you know, being subjected to, you know, segregation, I believe he was sent in the 50s or early 60s, uh, you know, being subjected to segregation, you know, like that would obviously, you know, rub him completely the opposite di direction of America. And I actually spoke with uh, the daughter of Mengistu uh, for a little bit. And I believe, and I asked the same question. I believe uh, he was introduced to him by a Vietnamese friend of his and someone else. But basically, yeah, so he started reading about it uh, in the United States. And by the time he came back to America, uh, Ethiopia, sorry, he was ready to, I guess, found this faction of, uh, of like-minded Ethiopian officers and whatnot. Uh, the thing about, actually, no, no. So, uh, yeah, so he was introduced to Marxism and Leninism this way. And by the time the revolution came, yeah, there was a clique of officers, you know, that I guess was educated by Mengistu or others uh, to implement, you know, this sort of Marxism Leninism. Soon enough, after the consolidation of, uh, of Mengistu, after the revolution, and also his alliance with Mason, uh, I think it was the Union of Ethiopian Marxists and their students. And there were two student groups in Ethiopia. It was the, uh, I think it was the EPRP, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party in Meson. The EPRP were, you know, they were critiqued actually. I believe it was called uh, the issue of left infantilism, Ethiopian student movement. Uh, I think that's what it's called. You could probably find it on Marxist.org, but they were, left adventurists at best, you know, while the revolution was going on and while, you know, the revolutionary flame action uh, 
were taking control, they were doing terrorist attacks against, you know, Mengistu's clique, right? And soon enough, they tried to assassinate him. And all of this, uh, you know, infantile adventurism that the EPRP uh, continued, uh, it was soon enough called the White Terror, you know, kind of hearkening to like the courage of Hungarian communists uh, and their revolution. And in Mengistu's eyes, the only way to, you know, get rid of this white terror faction was to purge them. So the red terror was initiated. So the 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 red terror or um, hark the the Keshebe, it's a very, very complex and divisive issue in the Ethiopian left and Horn of African left. So this is my view on it. You know, you could probably ask a million different people and they'll probably give you a million different answers. But at first the red terror was something that needed uh, to be done in the sense of getting rid of the EPRP because they really did not provide any positive uh, impact for the Ethiopian left because there were things like Mason and the EPRP had a lot of, uh, if you read the party program, they, they did not really uh, offer a real solution to a lot of the things that were most pertinent to Ethiopians, you know, which is land, which is, you know, they, I think they still believed in the just fair rent collection. So somehow allowing rents uh, to be dished out in a country where feudalism persists. Uh, so they were, you know, they were purged and, you know, their leadership was, you know, I believe that they were executed, a lot of them were exiled and whatnot. Uh, and then there were two phases of this red terror. And I believe in both phases, there were a lot of excesses done. A lot of innocent people uh, were killed, unfortunately. But then the second and uh, more intolerable aspect of the Red Terror was that they purged Mason. And Mason were probably one of the, Mason were probably one of the most, uh, you know, famous martyrs in the Ethiopian revolution and the, and the more good uh, martyrs, I guess, because People like Haile Fida and others in Mason contributed heavily to the ideological cultivation of the Derek's ideology. They were the ones actually sent to educate officers, educate soldiers and whatnot on this, uh, on this, you know, Marxism Leninism. And they were, they, they wrote a lot actually. And they wrote things like the, the program for the National Democratic Revolution, which was basically saying, we want to build socialism, but we have to institute a national democracy for a new democracy, like uh, like Mao said. You know, you can't with uh, colonies and semi-colonies. You can't really have socialism until you have new democracy. And because of this, you know, they they wrote this program, which is even if uh, the Derek uh, urged Mason, which was unfortunate and indefensible, the thing of the National Democratic Revolution. Uh, the program, the NDR, National Democratic Revolution, uh, you can clearly see how it influenced the policy for the next 17 years of the Derek. You know, how it didn't start with like extreme industrialization and just copying the Soviet model. Instead, it was a material analysis of the problems of Ethiopia and how we can fix them through, you know, uh, socialism. And in my opinion, it worked. But the thing is, the, the red terror kind of snuffed out a generation of Ethiopian students, especially Mason, who had a lot to offer for their country. And just in a couple of short years, they produced things like that. 
program for the National Democratic Revolution, which already shows how invaluable they were. The, that was kind of like the double-edged uh, sword of the Red Terror. Apart from that, there were things like the, uh, the invasion of the Ogaden by uh, Siad Bar. And that's another complex issue because, you know, the, things, the thing about the Ogaden is that it is, you know, an overwhelmingly uh, Somali populated uh, area. It is almost 100% ethnic. Actually, I don't know about 100% because there are a lot of formal people there. But there, it is an overwhelmingly Somali province. Historically, it was populated by Somali clans. And the people there do have their right to national self-determination and to join up with Somalia. Though, however, <laughs> the thing, things like, you know, in my opinion, the crypto-fascist Ziad uh, Bari, his invasion was intolerable. Tens of thousands of people died, you know, in massacres and whatnot. And although the Ethiopian Cuban response uh, did have a lot of civilian deaths as well, which is also intolerable, the things like uh, just an outright invasion while Ethiopia is going through things like famine, uh, revolution, and uh, you know, uh, finding a sense of direction, an invasion in the middle of that doesn't help both countries, doesn't help any country in that regard, you know, and. The, and Fidel Castro actually pointed out that uh, the entire Horn of Africa and uh, South Yemen were, you know, uh, had Marxist-Leninist government. And because of this, they should actually unite into a federation, a socialist federation that uh, controls one of the more most fertile and rich, uh, like uh, land, like landrise rich areas in Africa, like the Horn of Africa. And also controls very strategic places like the, the Straits for the Red, Red Sea. This area should unite, and they do have a very common history, like the Akuma Empire in Ethiopia and Eritrea had a lot of ties and even controlled at one point Yemen. And they, you know, a lot of Somali ancient Somali trading cities in, uh, had trade with the Akuma Empire and stuff like that. And Ethiopia already has a history of you know, having Somali citizens and stuff like that. So. Obviously, it shouldn't unite under the flag of Ethiopia, but it should unite under an uh, equal federation of, you know, of nations uh, within the Horn of Africa and South Yemen. And I believe this was the line that, uh, that was taken by Siad Bari for a while and Mangusta Hadamarian. But uh, I don't know the exact details, but I do know that Saudi Arabia and America had a lot of... Uh, had push factors, I guess, with Somalia's uh, decision to invade Ethiopia and, and, you know, just institute all that terrible stuff by giving them like hundreds of millions, of, well, I don't know about hundreds, but like millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars in military aid for Siad Bari. And after the invasion, I mean, you kind of saw how opportunistic he was, you know, just completely renouncing socialism and, uh, and you know, turning his country into quite literally a fascist uh, dictatorship, in my opinion. At least one of the, probably the best example of uh, African fascism uh, on the continent. So that was uh, the, the road, like the very rocky road into the, into the consolidation of the revolution. You know, so after the war uh, with Somalia and stuff like that, uh, you know, Mingus was like, I, everyone just calm down. Let's actually build something here. There were things like, you know, by following the, the program of the National Democratic Revolution, they saw things as 
important to deal with, like illiteracy, right? They're, they're ruling over a country with a literacy rate of 6%, right? So 94% of the country can't even read and they have to build socialists in this country. So they immediately got to work with uh, literacy programs and also land programs, right? You know, one of the only countries to have, this is a country with slavery persisting in 1974, you know, feudalism persisting in 1974, right? I just wanna say, if Mengistu hadn't gotten to power, like Ethiopia would still be, uh, maybe not still have feudalism, but it would literally have, like just be getting out of feudalism in the 21st century, you know? So uh, things like literacy programs, things like uh, uh, land reform, which was a very, very comprehensive and very, very strict land reform. It was called Merit La Arashu, uh, which means land, Merit, Le, which is like to uh, Arashu, which is the tiller, right? So land to the tiller, that was the program. So if you, if you work the land here, that's your land, you know? And, Basically, that was uh, giving people, you know, who used to be slaves the day before their own plots of land to work with and their own life, you know, because at this point, uh, with the relations in, of production at the time, land is everything. You know, land creates a wealth, land creates a prestige. And giving that to 99% of Ethiopians is a huge thing. So this land reform, this... Uh, this uh, literacy programs and stuff like that, which was one of the most successful ones in the developing world, mind you, going from 6% to the low 80% in the span of 17 years is almost unheard of, right? And that kind of shows you the power of, uh, of this ideology we call socialism, this ideology called Marxism and Leninism, right? So due to this program of like new democracy and building this national democracy in Ethiopia, the, the, the party Congress, well, there was no actual party. There was the COPE, which was the Committee for Organizing the Working People of Ethiopia. And it was basically saying, we need to analyze the material conditions of Ethiopia, analyze the people, analyze what the, how they relate to the means of production and stuff like that to build a party for the Ethiopian people. That's why we didn't see a People's Democratic Republic. That's why we didn't see a Workers' Party of Ethiopia emerge until, I believe, 87, uh, because, you know, this building of, the you know productive forces just from the area out of feudalism had to take time you know and you had to do it in a very meticulous manner or you're not going to properly build a you know socialist economy so soon enough uh, after all this stuff was going on and building up a you know a material basis uh, a proper material basis in Ethiopia for a socialist state they uh, they started off with the inauguration of the People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the Workers' Party of Ethiopia, finally saying we have built socialism in the country and we're ready uh, to move on, you know, in a very dialectical uh, manner. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of like the, the story until the People's Democratic Republic. And this is 87, right? The Derek fell in 91. So, you know, this is, there was like a short window of kind of continuing the land reform, continuing the literacy rate, uh, considering the literacy programs, right? Uh, and now with 87, they instituted something called the 10-year plan of Ethiopia. And it was basically saying, you know, we are very behind in the world. You know, uh, can I still keep going? I don't know if I'm 
Yes, um, yes. Sorry, I just need to grab something quickly. You're good, you're good. I, I completely understand. And uh, so in 87, they instituted the 10-year plan, which is basically saying we are very behind in the world. You know, we just came out of feudalism. We still haven't even reached uh, comparable points uh, with other socialist countries, other African countries, right? And this is still a country. I mean, even then, they still got lost, like I said before. Uh, but also raising the life expectancy by almost 10 years already, right? So the 10-year plan was instituted. And it's basically saying, let's use the coffee profits. Let's use the, the money we make from gold and all this sort of stuff to actually build up uh, the Ethiopian manufacturing industry and an Ethiopian industrial economy. And because of this, they, they, uh, you know, they were having insane amounts of uh, industrial growth, industrial uh, manufacturing growth and things like that so that was like the industrial aspect of ethiopia and there's a lot of uh and at first reading this i was kind of disappointed like wow the soviet union industrialized in like less than a decade basically right you know so why didn't ethiopia do this but actually understanding dialectical materialism kind of forces you to like admit that like they did take the proper route with actually building up this uh, new democracy, national democracy, and stuff like that first, and then moving on to, to things that we deem as like stereotypically like communist, like heavy industry and whatnot, you know? And I, I forgot to mention, there was things like uh, uh, communal farms and collectivizing farms, which was, in a, which was a crazy, crazy massive operation that the Ethiopian government tried to do. It was called the Villagization Program. And it was having these pre-built villages with seeds already in the land, with land ready to till, land ready to sow. And moving farmers from very overpopulated areas like the north, like in Tigray, uh, and moving them south uh, in more virgin lands. And it would have been very successful if the civil war wasn't going on. And if basically, if they had more time, if you really look at it, because people in communal farms, they had higher output, they had uh, better lives and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like one of those things like, dang, I really wish, uh, I really wish we had more time to see how long it would have, see uh, the course it would have taken. Uh, there were things like, you know, cabeles, uh, uh, which was basically like worker councils within the cities and the countryside, uh, you know, farmers and stuff like that elected their own bureaucrats to talk to their regional, uh, it was basically a Soviet democracy, you know, these people would elect their peers, their working peers uh, to speak with, you know, bureaucrats and speak with party officials to, about their provinces and whatnot. And, you know, uh, I believe in the 80s, places like Eritrea and the Ogaden, which formed their own nations, uh, especially Eritrea and the Ogaden, they formed something with the Somali nation, they were given autonomy, you know, they were given cultural autonomy to do what they please and whatnot. Uh, especially places like the Ogaden, which, you know, Somalia at this point is in a very precarious position. So, you know, just transferring a massive portion of land like the Ogaden uh, to Somalia was pretty much an unfeasible move, in my opinion. We're giving these people, you know, self-determination. Well, self-determination properly would probably have been, you know, transferring the land to a socialist Somalia. But uh, giving these people autonomy culturally and whatnot was probably the best thing we could have done in the conditions of a Horn of Africa that was on fire, basically. You know, and uh, 
even though all this you know, incredible stuff was going on, you know, there were still things like the Civil War, the TPLF and the EPRDF, you know, that, uh, that you know, that took over the country and they restored uh, the bourgeoisie and the, they restored the power of the bourgeois uh, actors in the country and brought Ethiopia to what it is now, which is basically an overglorified coffee colony, you know, coffee plantation for the West. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually curious about that part of the history as well, like this council revolution beginning in the late 80s, but really culminating in 1991. How much did the end of the Soviet support for Ethiopia in 1990 uh, play a role in this like culmination of, of a lot of things. So, right, like the civil war that had already been going on, the increased nationalism of Eritrea uh, and Tigray uh, play a role in, in overthrowing uh, the Workers' Party of Ethiopia and the People's Democratic Republic. Um, and then what was, like you said, you kind of mentioned the aftermath. So how is that still playing a role in Ethiopia today uh, I, I guess like the subject, of course, of the ongoing civil war in Ethiopia is very relevant. And like, what's the legacy of uh, this counter revolution, if you want to put it that way, in still affecting Ethiopian politics um, today? Yeah, sure. You know, the, the Soviet support of Ethiopia, you know, it was it was significant at first, you know, with the Brezhnev doctrine and stuff like that. Basically, uh, you know, Brezhnev saying that you know, the Soviet Union has a right to intervene in all sorts of conflicts within its aligned states. So creating more aligned states is better for the Soviet Union. That's why they had such massive support for Angola, uh, for example, with the MPLA and stuff like that. Uh, you know, but the thing about Russian support was that it was a very uh, one-sided affair. You know, they were giving out old uh, AK-47s and overpricing them crazily, right? So instead, what they did, especially in the 80s, was that uh, they built the national defense industry. And, was, and basically now, Ethiopia was producing AK-47s. Ethiopia was on the brink of producing its own T, uh, T-74, the Ethiopian tanks, right? I think they were already producing tanks, but they were on the brink of producing airplanes. So I can make it or I'm really bad with military hardware. But, uh, you know, they, they were already being able to repair Soviet planes for their own use. And uh, they were probably on the brink of uh, their own production, right? So this, uh, it was already a pretty bustling uh, national, uh, I guess, military arms industry because of like how bad Soviet support was, you know? And, uh, and you can see that, you know, after Gorbachev was, you know, kind of took over the country, uh, a lot of the aid given to Ethiopia was, you know, restricted. A lot of it went down. Uh, you know, they did an interview with Ngusu, I believe, in the early 2000s. And he said the biggest enemy of the revolution was Gorbachev. You know, the biggest enemy of the Ethiopian revolution was Gorbachev himself because, uh, you know, a lot of Ethiopia was on the brink of kind of defeating this counter-revolution. Uh, and that kind of, that financial support and stuff like that, when it went away, you know, it kind of crumbled, you know. It's more of a coincidence that Ethiopia fell in uh, in '91, you know. Uh, while all the countries like in Romania and Germany, they kind of just let power go peacefully, 
where there were like revolutions and well, you can barely call the revolution, like basically protests and stuff like that, like in Hungary and stuff like that, that kind of took down their socialist states. With Ethiopia, it was just a, it was a civil war that could have went both ways, you know? So uh, it's more of a coincidence, I guess, that, uh, that the fall of communism happened in 91 uh, for Ethiopia. And the, the counter-revolutionary forces, you know, the EPRDFs, you know, they were, they were chameleons politically, you know, they, they, they called themselves hojists, Maoists, uh, liberals and stuff like that. So all sorts of things uh, for support and whatnot. And this, uh, this force of uh, like dozens of, uh, of ethnic forces and parties and whatnot, basically used uh, reactionary nationalism, right? To, uh, to, you know, take power, right? They would tell Tagore people, like instead of being a part of, you know, socialist Ethiopia where, you know, all peoples are accounted for and whatnot, why not be a part of a independent uh, Tigray Republic? And if you see, uh, you know, if you see uh, maps of like an independent Tigray in, by the TPLF, right, in the 70s, it, it, it constituted huge amounts of territory that oppressed all sorts of nations. Like it included tons of Afar land and tons of Eritrean land, you know, and just they would basically do this for each, you know, nation. Like instead of being, you know, a part of an Ethiopia, as uh, as someone from uh, like Oromo, why not be a part of like this massive uh, Oromo Republic? Why not be a part of this massive uh, Dinka Republic? Why not be a part of this massive like Woloita Republic? You know, basically just imbuing you know this very uh, reactionary nationalism in tens of millions of people. And by the time uh, they took power in '91, the TPLF betrayed everyone. You know they. Uh, they disarmed the OLF and uh, the Oromo Liberation Front. They disarmed them. They basically, you know, strong-armed every other party to be like, they're actually going to believe in United Ethiopia, but it's going to be very, very federal, very, very decentralized. Uh, and uh, this kind of forced ascension into a capitalist modernity for Ethiopia was very uh, apocalyptic, you know? Like, if you, I mean, you can see it in all sorts of places that the, you know, when Britain, France, America, when they entered that sort of industrial modernity, uh, it was also apocalyptic, you know, that's, that's why socialism became a thing in the first place. It's basically saying, how can we restore like this uh, sociality between, between mankind that was kind of taken away uh, uh, due to this uh, ascension of capitalism? And it was the same thing in Ethiopia, minus a lot of the industrialization, you know, you know people started going back into uh, their coffee farms from their, they used to farm grain for their country and be self-sufficient. Now they're back in the coffee farms and Starbucks would come in, you know, Dunkin' Donuts would come in and pay, you know, pennies, half, like half a penny for thousands and thousands of kilos of coffee, you know, and I mean, you can go to a Starbucks. This is why I don't like Starbucks. You can go to Starbucks and you can see like these bags of like $20, you know, Abyssinian Ethiopian coffee and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you go like to Ethiopia and you see like they're not getting paid. They're, they're not, they don't look like they're getting paid $20 per pound. They look like they're getting paid half a penny for 20 pounds, half a penny for like a thousand pounds. You know, like it's ridiculous, like how humiliating it is, you know, as an Ethiopian to see that what we had before was just crumbled and now we're like, like this, you know, this like 
you know, cough, like it's disgusting, you know? And that's kind of like the, the sentiment you can see in all sorts of places in the Ethiopian economy, this third rate, uh, economy, this subservient economy uh, to Western interests, you know, instead of industrializing while well, we had the chance and we clearly showed that we did have the potential for it. We instead deindustrialized. We instead, uh, our manufacturing industry simply puts coffee beans into bags to send <laughs> to the West. You know, you know, this is a this is a sad reality. And uh, and it's only getting worse. You know, with a lot of the privatizations that Abi Ahmed uh, tries to do and stuff like that. I mean, of course, uh, the TPLF and whatnot. Their their rabid uh, desire to take power back. I don't support it either, but uh, you know, Abi Ahmed, he, he's not like that guy, you know? Uh, I see a lot of people on you know, Twitter like, oh, like critical support, you know, and stuff like that for Abi Ahmed. We don't want to support Abi, you know, like this guy wants to, uh, you know, just privatize anything that's making money in Ethiopia, like the Ethiopian Airlines which, you know, is actually a really good airline. You know, it's actually one of the better ones in Africa. It's a very, very lucrative industry in Ethiopia. And he wants to privatize that. Ethio Telecom, which is like the telecommunications, uh, they own telecommunications. He wants to privatize that as well. You know, the only reason why it didn't happen is because of the sanctions and because of the war itself, you know. But uh, yeah, it's a very, very sad reality for uh, Ethiopians now. I mean, in 2018, when the TPLF and the EPRDF was kind of ousted from power in a very popular revolution, uh, you know, there were calls by many people, protests even, to, to allow Mengistu to come back in the country, you know, saying, you know, you guys claim that we're going to have national reconciliation, national rejuvenation, all this sort of stuff. Why is this guy Mengistu? Uh, why is he just barred from entering the country, you know? So... There was protests. Uh, I think there was an article. Obviously, it's a very skewed, you know, it's like why some Ethiopians miss a bloody Marxist dictator or whatever. But uh, you can see, you know, people who still carry his postcards, you know, and these, and the thing that uh, made me very happy was that this isn't old people, you know, like, like you know, Soviet nostalgia, Ostalgi and East German stuff like that, of like older people who lived in that time kind of want that back, you know. This is young people, students, you know, this is young farmers and whatnot who want to return to uh, what we had before, which is, you know, these people barely even lived or haven't even lived in Mingus's Ethiopia. And they, they can see uh, the benefits it had and they want that back. You know, that's a very, very, uh, that's something that gives me hope, you know, and especially as this war, you know, kind of develops and whatnot. I feel like a lot of people are going to look back at, uh, at what we had before. Even in the diaspora, I said before, uh, before Ethiopians kind of related uh, as Cubans to communism, you know, I spoke with many, obviously like my experience, you know, like there's a half a million Ethiopian Americans, you know, obviously like my experience isn't gonna speak for all of them, but a lot of, you speak to a lot of them, they, they'll be like, yeah, we, I regret it. I regret protesting against me. I regret, you know, it's kind of like, a, that famous shot in that Vice documentary about Libya, like the guy saying, I fought against Gaddafi, but now, like, if I had the chance, I'd fight for him again. I'd fight for Gaddafi. No, I'd, I, I wouldn't fight against him. That's basically what's going on with Ethiopia now. That's a very uh, heartening uh, thing to hear, you know.
And, uh, you know, you can see in all sorts of, you know, signifiers for economic life, you know, debts increased. Uh, you know, we had a one to seven parity with the dollar, a one dollar for seven bear, which is pretty good for an African economy. Now it's in the 60s. Uh, even then, all, for, all in the 2000s, it was always in the double digits. You know, uh, we had a war with Eritrea for their own land, the, the Badame Triangle, which is Eritrean land. And half of almost like hundreds of thousands of Ethiopians died for it, you know. Uh, you see things like female genital mutilation on the increase. You see things like illiteracy, which is one of the most sad things I've seen like in my life, but like our 80% literacy rate went down to 50%. You know, like it's a very, very tragic thing. It's an apocalyptic thing, you know, and you see people now, like you see the emergence of sweatshops in Ethiopia producing textiles and stuff like that. A lot of people say, our country is industrialized and this is incredible, but you know, if you, if you see the reality of what's going on, you know, like the, unfortunately a lot of foreign investment from all sorts of countries, you know, are kind of causing this, uh, this capitalist modernity to be even more apocalyptic for Ethiopians because now we have to deal with the, you know, we have to deal with the problems caused by uh, industrialization with workers' rights and can, like working, working conditions for people and stuff like that being absolutely terrible. But then also we have to realize that not realize, but we have to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, our agrarian, you know, cash crop economy is probably going to take uh, prominence when it comes to contracts in the West and whatnot. So uh, I still have hope, especially due to Ethiopians kind of uh, rebuilding a lot of their consciousness, class consciousness, their thoughts on Mengistu. I have hope on that, but also uh, it's still very sad, you know, what happened with the counter revolution. I think what you said about rebuilding class consciousness, that's very fascinating. That's kind of one of the last things I'd like to talk to you about is uh, I think the outside Ethiopia, and so I'm, I'm curious, like within Ethiopia, the, the memory of, uh, I kind of as you're talking about the memory of the Workers' Party and the People's Democratic Republic, because I know that outside of Ethiopia, it gets frequently used by these like victims of communism, Prager U type of things to make, you know, to make some point or whatever. And typically they they talk about the famine and, and point to this as like more victims of communism or whatever. Um, but obviously, as you're saying that to a certain extent is uh, is embellished by uh, by the West and by by capitalist propaganda to have this narrative about about communism. And I'm, I'm curious too about how that reflects like uh, communism in Africa in particular uh, being condemned so heavily when, as you're saying, like it really in particular, uh, this, this communist model was like leaps and bounds ahead on trying to move Ethiopia forward out of that, out of this imperial feudal period into not necessarily modernity, but something like socialist modernity development and in particular human development. So the, that's kind of what I'm curious about is like the reflection, the memory of it as a, really a mission of, of human development against this like deep rooted uh, feudal period and, and uh, this like underdeveloped period, but also how this perspective, you know, that you definitely hear in the US when there these like um, these organs of, of bourgeois propaganda are talking about 
communism, they always have to bring up Ethiopia. And it seems like there's a particular reticence to admit that that people in, in an African nation could ever make this huge leap forward in human development. So how, how that's inspiring. And then um, what you see as the left kind of continuing, is there still a left in Ethiopia or is it still kind of regaining itself uh, after I guess 30 so years of, uh, of counter-revolution and neoliberalism? What's the future of the left in Ethiopia and having this memory, but now kind of re reclaiming itself? Um, so those, I guess, final couple questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. With uh, the the memories of uh, communism in Ethiopia, you know, everyone, you know, the 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 WPE and COPE and stuff like that, these are mass organizations. You know, everyone saw, uh, you know, Marxism and Leninism in their face. You know, even if you go to Ethiopia, uh, Addis Ababa today is the capital. You can see things like uh, the Tiglatchen Monument uh, with art styles very reminiscent of you know North Korean socialist uh, realism. In fact, North Korea actually provided a lot of the art pieces for the monument. Uh, you know, you see, I forgot what it's called, but there's a big monument in Ethiopia now. It's just a hammer and sickle, just right there, and you can see it. You know, a lot of like, you know, this beautiful, uh, you know, art method Derek provided. Uh, it's still there. Of course, there are things like the the Vladimir Lenin statue that was taken down in '91, unfortunately. But uh, you know, people know about the Derek. You know. People can clearly see it. And of course, yeah, there's this 30 years of counter-revolution, bourgeois education that's trying to stamp it out. But uh, as people understand that the currency is being worth less and less by the day, their savings are being halved uh, in the span of 10 years, right? Their savings are being halved, their currency is worth less, their brothers and sisters are, you know, they can learn how to read, but their children can't learn how to read, you know, you know, like uh, their cousin lost, you know, a finger at the factory and stuff like that. While all this stuff is going on, famine, you know, starves half your family to death. You know, people will need to see an alternative, you know. And in places without socialism, an alternative can uh, can easily be taken by uh, by demagogues and uh, and that's how fascism is created and stuff like that. Ethiopia has an example. Right. We have an example from not even too long ago that an alternative to what's going on can work. An alternative that's going on, that an alternative to what's going on now will happen. And the people will love it in the sense of uh, the people will understand, like, their, especially people who fought against Mengistu, uh, you know, they'll understand that they've made their mistakes. And people who want an alternative can already see just from talking to their parents, just from talking with their uncles and aunts and stuff like that, they can already see an alternative that exists to this apocalyptic uh, modernity that they live in now. And soon enough, something will happen. You know, I mean, you can already see in Kenya, the Communist Party of Kenya, the Swazi Revolution, you know, uh, the economic freedom fighters in South Africa. You know, a lot of these uh, socialist movements and class consciousness are developing in Africa. You know, people are saying, we've gotten like, like the idea of African independence still lives in their minds, you know, like the ideas of Patrice Lumumba, the ideas of Kwame Nkrumah, the ideas of Julius and Yeri, it still lives in the hearts of these people. And they understand that that independence that they talked about, that independence that they strive for, it was taken away from them, you know, like that's why the Communist Party of Kenya is, you know, rapidly growing, you know, because they understand that something 
that is innately theirs, their own independence, their national independence was taken away from them. And the Communist Party is the only thing that can get that back, you know? And Ethiopia is one of those countries that did have their independence. Historically, it's very famous for it, but it's independence from this uh, capitalist aligned world uh, was taken away from them. And they understand that they did have an independence away from capitalism. And all uh, Ethiopian left has to do is educate the people about that independence that they had and about the, the, the booms of that independence when they, when they get it back. You know, and unfortunately, we can't see an Ethiopian left today that's substantial, you know. But uh, as the war progresses, you know, the war basically skyrocketed and fast forwarded uh, the ideas of class consciousness in Ethiopia, you know, as, you know, their entire world is basically shaken, you know, in North Ethiopia, South Ethiopia, everywhere you go, uh, radicalism is increasing. And when I say radicalism, I mean all sorts of radicalism, political radicalism, national radicalism, all sorts of things. And the idea of uh, the idea of an average Ethiopian at this point, the idea of the average Ethiopian is that he's not willing to take it anymore. You know, like this is the last straw for the Ethiopian people. And it's a critical time for an Ethiopian left to develop. And I can see what happened very, very soon in our lifetime. And uh, maybe it's, you know, success with the people of Ethiopia can also happen in our lifetime, hopefully, as well. But something will happen. You know, the, the sense of hopelessness in the 2000s of, uh, of, you know, famine being unaddressed, of illiteracy being unaddressed, female genital mutilation being unaddressed and stuff like that. The idea of this helplessness in Ethiopia is gone. You know, we're, we're willing to take what we had before. We're willing to take what was taken from us. We're willing to take it back, you know, just like the, the Arbenyoch, right? The patriots, uh, the, the partisans, right? Of Ethiopia in the Italian occupation. They were willing to put their whole lives to take what they had back, they're independent. Now there's gonna be a new partisan. There's gonna be a new Ethiopian Arbenya to take it back, you know? I can see that already. Well, that, that's really incredible. And I think that, uh, as you were saying, as uh, the war continues, but also as there's a continuing crisis within the, the world system as it is, uh, mm -hmm. it opens up a lot of opportunities for reflection on what was before, you know, the, the goals of the, uh, the People's Democratic Republic. And Another thing that I think is very inspirational, as you mentioned, with the with the monument, um, you know, being provided by North Korea, or the Cuban um, involvement in the in the Ogaden War to preserve the revolution. I mean, right there, you have the the tricontinent, as it were, uh, of the global South coming together um, with you know Latin America, Africa, and Asia, uh, three communist nations having this solidarity together. And that's always an incredible thing to think about how the how the global south communist model has progressed, how it's been against a particular form of exploitative uh, neo-colonial capitalist rule. And I think that Ethiopia is a great example within the African continent of uh, a communist party that had power that used it to progress human development against previous forms of imperialist and uh, and, and capitalist uh, control of Ethiopia. And that's why there's still this fond memory, just like there is across the, the former Soviet Union, uh, across countries that formerly were communist. 
for a previous time that was focused on on human development and in particular uh, this model of development within the global south which is very impressive so I, i'm curious just if you have any last thoughts any like more information that people listening should know uh, about the history of ethiopian communism um, or any any book recommendations anything that people can read to increase their knowledge on the subject i guess that can be our final note Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, on Marxist.org, there's a, there's a huge repository of uh, of theory written by Ethiopian communists. If you guys are uh, willing, and if you guys want to understand uh, material analysis of the forces uh, in Ethiopia, there's a lot of writing by Mason, a lot of writing by the EPRP uh, and other student groups uh, like Walani. Uh, well, it's not a student group, but people like Walani Mokonnen. Uh, and stuff like that, people like Haile Fida, you know, the writings are available on Marx.org uh, to understand what they were thinking and whatnot. Uh, probably the best book you can read uh, about, uh, like an empirical study on Ethiopian communism on the People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia is called Revolutionary Ethiopia from Empire to People's Republic. And it's one of the best books I've ever read on the, on the subject of, you know, how Ethiopia started off, you know, as a small feudal you know kingdom in northern ethiopia and how it took it uh, you know all you know a huge amount of the horn of africa basically modern ethiopia now in the span of you know a century and you know how the monarchy and the 1960 coup d'etat kind of influenced the 74 revolution and uh and probably the the brainchild uh of the revolution with like the national democratic revolutionary program stuff like that and how it influenced ethiopia and it provides tons of sources, tons of, you know, like numbers and stuff like that, like the benefits of like the, you know, literacy programs, communal farms, collectivized agriculture and economics and stuff like that. And the guy's a very neutral source. You know, he criticizes Mengistu a lot, which is a good thing. Uh, I think he's even anti-Mengistu, but, uh, but the fact that his writings provide such a good, like understanding of how much benefit Ethiopia had under the socialist system. The book is an incredible recommendation. It's probably the only thing you need to read at first, of course, you know, you should always enrich your learning on the subject. But if you read that book, you're basically good. Uh, so yeah, that's basically all I have to say, man. It was, a, it was an honor being here. You know, I love talking about this and, you know, I always have a, I have a lot to say if you guys wanted to, to come back. Well, I think we definitely will. Um... And and I'll stay in touch. Uh, I'm always available on the on the Twitter um, for like if you if you want to DM us anytime because uh, mm -hmm. we may definitely do like a follow up on a further in depth analysis of the ongoing uh, civil war. Um, but I yeah I also just want to say thank you so much. This was really personally very uh, enriching for my own understanding of Ethiopian communism because I. Think like many people your first encounter with it is always like a western perspective and never mm -hmm. actually thinking about the perspective from from people from ethiopia so this has been very uh, enriching for me and i'm sure you know everybody listening will will have the same uh, opinion of it so thank you so much and uh, i'll definitely stay in touch that was good it was an honor man i'm gonna see you later cool bye -bye. all right bye